Hello, I'm Michelle Cahill, and welcome to the XQ Expert Series. Today, we're talking about measuring progress toward readiness for post-secondary education, work, and community and civic life. How can we usefully measure students' progress toward that goal? Our three guests today have all done innovative work that incorporates new and authentic ways to measure students' progress. They are Andy Calkins, Deputy Director of Next Generation Learning Challenges, an initiative of the nonprofit group Educause. Andy is an expert in school development, teaching and learning, and educational technology. Karen Pittman, Chief Executive Officer of the Forum for Youth Investment and creator of its Ready by 21 initiative. Karen is one of the nation's leading voices on youth development. And Antonia Rudenstein, Director at Redesign, which provides coaching and design support to school systems. Antonia has been a prime driving force behind Mastery Learning, an approach that is opening up new, important ways to look at the relationship between student learning and assessment. Welcome, everyone. Measures make sense only when we have a clear picture of what we're aiming for. To get us started, could each of you share one core insight on what college and career readiness really means? Karen, could we start with you? Absolutely, Michelle. I think that while the content skills and knowledge for being college-ready and being career-ready or even being life-ready may differ, what we've learned is that their core mindsets and skill sets that add up to give young people agency to be ready uh, for challenges and opportunities that they face in both of these settings. Antonia? For me, college and career readiness means the ability to deal with a huge volume of information very rapidly, to be able to synthesize it, to be able to create new products around it, and to be able to put out into the world original pieces of work. And that that is a phenomenally high demand on our young people today, and unlike anything that we've asked of them previously. And Andy, what is your thinking? Michelle, we've just emerged from an era where we really were defining success in a very limited way as core academic knowledge. And we've now moved beyond that to include not just that, although that's very, very important, but to the the critical thinking and the application of that knowledge to different domains and different circumstances. And beyond that, to all of the other social-emotional learning kinds of skills that allow you to navigate your way in the world, get things done, imagine new things, and know how to learn. Could each of you explain a little bit about your work, what you're doing to prepare more young people for the challenges of college career? And we always add civic and community life because that is so important. Andy, could you begin? Sure. Uh, That's exactly the design challenge that all of our grantee schools are working on. We're, we're working with 80 schools around the country that are trying to create new designs for student-centered, personalized, competency-based, blended, very experiential kinds of learning models. And they're all pitched around this richer, deeper definition of student success. So what we're learning from them is that you have to do this in a through line because all of those things, the definition of success, the learning model that proactively helps kids develop those skills, and the ways that you measure their progress are all interdependent and interrelated. Andy, could you say a little bit about what you mean by a learning model? We all have a picture in our head of what, quote, school 
unquote looks like, and it's usually a bunch of kids sitting at desks, mostly organized in rows, and they're all responding to a teacher talking to them from the front. And that's fine. That's a time-honored modality of learning, and it has its purposes, but it's not the only one. And we've discovered through a lot of learning science and brain research that, in fact, kids do best when they learn through a range of different modalities, not just kids, but adults too. So in the schools that we're helping to catalyze and develop, walk into those classrooms and you'll see five or six or seven or eight different modalities going on at once. In in this corner, you'll see a teacher working with kids in a direct instruction kind of way. But over in that corner is a team of students working on a project they're doing together. In the other corner are some kids doing individualized diagnostic software. And then there's a whole bunch of other kids who might be outside of the classroom on an authentic learning field trip. So it's all a very rich broth of different kinds of learning and learning experiences all organized around each individual student's best and most effective learning pathway. Antonia. Could you explain the big concepts behind mastery learning? At Redesign, we do lots of work around mastery learning design and school design. So what I would say were the big concepts behind mastery learning is the idea that you one would articulate a set of competencies, a set of things that one believes students really should learn and can learn within a period of time. We'd be thinking about competencies students would need in order to be prepared for college and career. Um, And from there, one would be trying to design learning experiences, both in a classroom and outside of the school walls. But in a mastery learning system, you're also trying to figure out where is legitimate learning happening across a student's life? And so if they're a really great singer and they go to rehearsals all the time and they're, you know, in church doing solos, but your school doesn't have a music program, how can you figure out a way to legitimate that and count that as really strong competency within the field of music? One of the big challenges that students often experience in high school is the demand to start using more academic language. How does that fit in with the kinds of mastery work that you've been doing? Let me give you an example from a school we've been working with recently. And the students could talk for long periods of time, happily, on many topics. Uh, But academic language was not something that they were comfortable with. And so the school basically decided to teach academic language as though it was a foreign language. And so they were very explicit and very detailed about what the words were. They created sentence stems. They gave students, you know, text to underline. And they really explicitly, literally taught the words that academics use. And then students have the challenge of both using academic language and becoming good, strong writers, where they can take a point of view, where they can use evidence. The school was deeply committed to building students' writing skills, and that whole reason to do work on the speaking was because they imagined it as a bridge to writing in the same way that foreign language students first begin by speaking and listening and later do reading and writing. 
the ultimate goal was always academic writing, using the same skills they'd used in a debate, the same skills they'd used in a Socratic seminar. They taught them to use academic language in writing in the same way, and they gave students feedback through low-stakes assessments that were learning opportunities. And later, when it turned out that some students were gaining academic writing skills much faster than others, they began to group kids very intentionally so that students could work on particular gaps in their writing skills. How is that school doing in terms of college and career readiness? Yeah, the students come in uh, having been retained at least one or two years, and they come in with a lot of skepticism that they could be learners or that school will really help them. And the students are thriving in ways that are very, very unexpected. They're passing the regents, they're going to college, and there are students who, when they come to the school, we're never going to see that in their future. I wanted to turn to Karen on that because you're such an expert in youth development. And the forum has been working hard to help youth development programs be more intentional about fostering social and emotional learning, or SEL. So could you just tell us what is SEL and how do you measure it? Social-emotional learning is what people often refer to as soft skills or 21st century skills or life skills. It is that core set of skills that allow young people to really move through situations effectively. That's problem-solving skills, a sense of responsibility, empathy, teamwork, initiative, persistence. These are the things that when we ask employers, what is it that you're looking for in young people who are coming in for entry-level jobs? These are also the skills that young people need to have when they show up uh, in college. And so the question becomes, what does it take to build these skills? And the simple answer is, it takes naming them And it takes giving young people multiple opportunities to practice them until they master them and they can carry them into new situations. Youth organizations have had the luxury of being able to focus on these kinds of social-emotional skills because they don't have the accountability for the deep content that schools do, but they also have the challenge that young people come to them voluntarily. So they have to focus on offering activities that young people have an intuitive interest in, these need to be activities that they can master, whether it's putting on a play, uh, it's building a boat, uh, it's organizing a campaign. They have to be things that are going to allow young people to focus on some kind of content while they build these skills. And in particular, the most important thing is really helping young people know how valuable these skills are for them to take with them into other settings. It's easy to imagine educators feeling burdened by the responsibility of having to add on all of this new skill development. Everything that Karen described around the habits of success, self-direction, mindsets. But in fact, these are not additional competencies that you organize courses and classwork around. In the schools that are really driving hard on this and are showing results even on traditional metrics, on academic cognitive knowledge, they're combining all of these things together and are showing that when students are doing purposeful work in an experiential way, really deeply well-thought-out project-based learning, they're developing all of those mindset skills simultaneously. So there's one grantee of ours, Valor Collegiate Prep in Nashville, that after its very first year 
of focusing relentlessly on social and emotional learning ended up with academic test scores on the Tennessee state tests that were the highest in metropolitan Nashville. So they're showing that the best way to help kids develop and demonstrate the kinds of cognitive skills that we have always cared about is in fact not to drill and drill and drill on those skills, but it's to incorporate them in a much richer fabric of learning. So let's go to assessment. It sounds as if measurement fits in at two levels, at the student level, as you've sketched out, and at the school or program level, where measures can help us design our work and then fine-tune it. Andy, could you start us off? We're all coming out of an era where assessment was branded incorrectly as being all and only about testing, on on on-demand testing, usually required by the state or your district. And in fact, assessment, measurement, and evidence gathering about what kids are learning and what they are capable of demonstrating is much, much broader than that. When you look at the whole range of competencies that we've been talking about in this conversation, we tend to use the metaphor of learning to drive, where you need to develop some content knowledge, rules of the road, how a dashboard works, and so on. But then you don't really learn until you're out on the road in an experiential, authentic learning environment with a coach helping you apply what you learned in content knowledge land. And even then, you're not a good driver until you develop those habits of success that allow you to know where people are around you. You have eyes in the back of your head and so on. And none of this adds up to anything much of value until you apply it towards navigating a fulfilling personal and civic life. That entire set of competencies demands an equally nuanced set of measurement and assessment strategies. So not just on-demand tests, but performance-based assessment where you're monitoring how students are working together, how they're thinking critically, how they're communicating, so on. What's the quality of the student work that they're producing? More and more schools are starting to use badges and micro-credentials, borrowing in part on the examples of the, of the scouting programs. So we've got to rethink our whole attitude towards assessment and measurement. So Andy, this is very rich and lots of food for thought in what you're saying. I know the Next Generation Learning Challenges, and would you talk a little bit about the ways that they're working together with some tools? The schools that we fund and written about their work at our website, nextgenlearning.org. We have also launched a number of research projects designed to surface the most noteworthy innovations that they are pioneering. One of those projects is called MyWays. You'll see a whole set of tools designed to help people creating new models to critically analyze their own definition of success and think about their own sets of strategies around assessment and measurement. Antonia, how are schools organizing themselves to scaffold the progress of individual students, which we know will be key to achieving educational equity? There's examples out there where people are really trying to deconstruct what we currently think of as high school, which has been very siloed and very much organized around these short little bursts of learning to really push down to give students projects that are similar to what you find in college. 
rather than projects that are what I would call a one-off. So you do something it takes six or eight weeks to complete, and you never do another one like it again. For students who need a lot of practice and repetition around these academic tasks, there needs to be other things built into the day where students can practice those. We're working with one school in particular that I love, Bronx Arena High School in New York City, where they completely broke apart the classroom. They've organized students into teams of 15 to 20 students who are with each other for several hours a day. They support each other, they're committed to each other, and they also are just comfortable learning with each other and failing with each other and trying again with each other. And in that classroom, you find what they call a generalist teacher and a youth developer who's there as a support. And between the two of them, they help students with both academic struggles and social-emotional struggles. And it's been a very potent, powerful recipe for the students in that school. The region scores in for the school have been off the charts. They had a 100% passing rate at their January testing. So they are graduating students, they are sending them to college, and the students are successful in college. And this was all starting with the idea of we have a few things we want students to learn, and we are going to make sure they learn them, but we're going to give them lots of different ways to learn at their own rate with a tight group of people who will support them. And it's been incredible to see what they've been able to accomplish. Can you tell us something about the kinds of tools that Redesign has been helping schools use? We were lucky enough to have the opportunity to develop a set of design guides to support schools in developing competencies in order to lay out what is mastery learning. We have a roadmap that shows if you move in the direction of mastery learning, what are all the components that are necessary in your program. And unfortunately, it's a long list of 60 plus things that are some small and some enormous and that really all need to be woven together in order to create a coherent system. We have ways for teachers and schools to reorganize time, to play around with an Excel template that allows them to, you know, picture different groupings of students. So there's a lot of different things. They're all freely available on our website, which is redesignu, the letter U, dot org. That's terrific. Karen, the forum through the SEL Challenge and Ready by 21 has been helping people see that the key dimensions of student development can be measured. I know that the forum has also researched and developed quality tools. This has been a long journey for us to really develop uh, tools that practitioners can use uh, that can be supported by those who are in the management and decision-making spaces because that's critically important. We can't just assume that practitioners, whether they're teachers or youth workers, really have the leeway to change their learning environments without that kind of broader administrative and management support. Where we started was really with a theory of change based on what we know about youth engagement and youth learning that says if you create a quality learning environment, both the practitioners and the young people will be engaged. You will build these core skills that we've been talking about, these SEL skills, that will lead them to a level of mastery that lets them transfer those skills out into other settings. So we even talk about young people having an abilities backpack. So what we did was to hone in on what does a quality learning environment look like? And when we started this work, youth organizations really defined themselves by their activities. Uh, and so they all thought they were very different. What we knew was that 
this quality learning environment was really content neutral. It was a context in which learning was happening. We ended up going back to something that basically is Maslow's needs hierarchy, that if you're going to really support learning and you're going to get to engagement, young people have to feel safe. That's both physically and psychologically safe, emotionally safe. They have to feel supported. They have to have relationships with both their peers and the adults. They have to really be being challenged to build skills, and those skills have to be named. And then they have to have a certain amount of choice in both what they're learning and how they're learning and how they're going to demonstrate learning. Those really have become what we call the sort of quality pyramid. Now, we're working with organizations that don't have a lot of time and don't have a lot of resources. And so these very quickly became things that could be either self-assessed or peer-assessed with anchored observation tools. Supervisors were critically important in this. You were building a performance culture that everybody understood the standards, they owned them, they loved having the common language, and then they began to actually improve. And what we've demonstrated is that you can go into a community that has not been selective about deciding who its youth organizations are, and over time you can get that entire group of organizations to move up towards a threshold of quality. All of these tools can be found under preparing youth to thrive. SELpractices.org is the way to get to it. As you know, hundreds of execute teams around the country are working on school designs. What advice do you have for these teams regarding measuring progress toward and achieving college and career readiness for every student? Andy? The most important message I think I can give to the XQ school designers out there is to understand that you're not doing this alone. You are part of a really exciting national community of mad scientists who are trying to recreate and redesign the public school model in America. And nobody is out there saying they have figured it out, but there are a bunch of models that are now three or four or five years old that we can and we should all be learning from. Specifically on assessment, you can go to assessmentforlearningproject.org. That's another new grant program that is providing resources to a really interesting set of schools and organizations trying to rethink assessment. And in a month, we'll be releasing a report that has us all incredibly excited. It's going to be called Measuring What Matters Most, which could actually have served as the title for this conversation here because we're all concerned with measuring what matters most. So how do you know how you're doing? How are you measuring student progress against all those competencies? How are you articulating that progress to their parents and to your other stakeholders? And how do you learn whether your own innovations are working or not? So uh, my advice to all of the XQ designers is to make use of all of the examples that are out there trying to create new pathways and new models for students. That's wonderful. Karen? I think that we have to continue to go back to what we know, which is that All young people want to be successful. All young people are looking for opportunities to master things that they care about or things that are important to them, and we need to give them opportunities to experience that. The youth development organizations in your communities can be amazing partners in this because they have the freedom to help create those opportunities as you're transforming schools and building those important things that add up to what we're calling readiness. I love the word readiness because when you look it up in the dictionary, it has two definitions. 
One definition is a willingness to do, and the second definition is being prepared. And we actually want young people to be both. We want them to be willing, to be motivated, and we also want them to be prepared. So we've also recently done a paper called uh, The Science Parentheses and Art of Readiness, Readiness by Design, as a part of the Readiness Project. It complements the amazing uh, set of uh, tools and resources that are on the XQ website, but I think it helps you think about how to bring all these different potential learning partners in your community together in order to help young people especially young people who are coming from disadvantaged circumstances in which they have failed academically, be ready for college and work. We're going to have to create opportunities in which their assumption is they're going to be able to succeed and not fail. Antonia, how about your advice to the teams around the country? My advice is begin with a few things that you really care about and figure out how you're going to measure them. And then Think incredibly boldly about how you're going to give students the experiences and practice they need in order to learn them. There's a huge range of ways that people learn, and unfortunately, most of us didn't have our most powerful experiences in school. So let's think about how could we get outside of those little classrooms and begin really giving our students opportunities to learn the very important things that we know they need to be prepared This is a deeply creative act, and I'm so excited to see what you come up with. Thanks for tuning in to our discussion on measuring progress toward career and college readiness. We hope you found some inspiration from our experts. Visit xqsuperschool.org for more information on XQ, the Super School Project.